This morning, I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Luke chapter 5, we'll begin at verse 17, we'll read through verse 26. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Luke chapter 5, let's begin at verse 17. One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles in the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and they said, we have seen remarkable things today. May God bless the reading, the preaching, and the understanding of his perfect word. You may be seated. As the ministry of Jesus continued, the crowd grew exponentially. It's in Mark's rendering of this very same story that he tells us the location of this miracle. It took place in a home in Capernaum. Luke doesn't seem all that interested in the location of the miracle. He seems much more intrigued in the demographics of the crowd. Not only on that day were the lame and the blind and the needy gathering there, but also in the crowd, we are introduced for the very first time in Luke's gospel to Pharisees and teachers of the law. Up until now, we've never been introduced to Pharisees or teachers of the law. We don't really know who they are up until this moment, but it's in this moment that Luke goes to a great extent to describe and define that the Pharisees were there and the teachers of the law were there. The Pharisees were deeply religious individuals. They were not priests, but they were educated men who had one passion in life to make sure that Israel faithfully followed the Mosaic law. They had sidekicks, teachers of the law. Elsewhere, they're defined as scribes. These scribes were like um, 
religious attorneys. They seem to codify the teaching of the Pharisees. So it's not uncommon that whenever you see Pharisees, you see scribes. Whenever you see scribes, you see Pharisees because they were kind of a duo. They were a Batman and Robin of Palestine. They were there to make sure that Israel faithfully followed the Lord. I can affirm and applaud their passion. They knew that it only took one generation to remove Judaism to extinction for if faithful Jews did not pass on the teachings of old. They were only one generation removed from complete extinction. I can appreciate their passion. But the way they went about it was pathetic. They would read the Old Testament law and they would say that there are some things in the Mosaic Covenant that are very clear. There are other things that are quite convoluted and unclear and so the Pharisees thought it'd be a great idea to help God out and to clarify those places where God might be a bit confusing let me give you just one example the Old Testament law says to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy most people understood that to mean that as the Lord rested on the seventh day, so his people are to rest on the seventh day. But the Pharisees came along and asked the question, what does it mean to rest? What does it mean to work? And so they developed 39 classes of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. They even went so far as to calculate the number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath without being guilty of working on the Sabbath. Now, how they came up with that mathematical equation, I have no idea. I don't know where they got this number of this is how many steps you can take. These are the things that are permissible, and these are the things that are out of bounds when it comes to work. It seems to me that they created burdensome, cumbersome rules and regulations for people to follow it wasn't as if God's people already had enough rules and regulations have you ever met anybody who's read the Old Testament and then said I really wish we had some more rules I wish God would have given us some more regulations. Have you ever met anybody like that? Nobody like that. In fact, when Jesus comes along, he reduces it down and summarizes all the law and the prophets into two commands to which we hang all of our hats. It's to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus said, you do these two things, you fulfilled the law. But nobody ever reads the Old Testament and says, boy, I wish God would have given us some more rules. Yet the Pharisees thought that we needed some more regulations. We needed some more rules. And so they would pass on interpretations. They would pass on teachings. And the scribes would legalize it. They would codify it. And they would pass on this understanding of what it is to be a faithful follower of God according to this interpretation of the Old Testament. In other words, the Pharisees and the scribes were creators of religion. If I were to ask you, are you religious, how would you answer that? And be careful how you answer it. Because there's really nowhere in the gospel where religion is portrayed in a positive light. Religion is rules without reason, structure without substance. Ministry without meaning. It is man's attempt to be declared innocent in the sight of God. That's religion. 
And so if I were to ask you, are you religious? If someone were to ask me, am I religious? Lord, help me. I hope not. I don't want to be religious. I want to be righteous. I want to have a righteousness that is not my own, but it belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ that he willingly bestows upon me as if it is my own and it's accomplished only through his work on the cross on your behalf and on mine. I don't want to be religious. I want to be righteous. I don't want to have man-made rules and regulations. I want to follow the law and the will of God and God alone. The Pharisees and the scribes were caught up in constructing religion. They appeared this day in this Capernaum house to see if Jesus towed the line. They had heard about this rebel rousing rabbi from Galilee. They had traveled from all sorts of places. Luke tells us that they traveled from every village of Galilee and Judea. And even so far as Jerusalem, they had heard about Jesus. They wanted to come and check him out for themselves. They wanted to see if he was a company guy or they wanted to know if he was a rogue rabbi. They wanted to determine for themselves who he is and what he's all about. And I promise you, they did not sit in the very back of the house. They found themselves on the front row right there in the middle at the heart of the living room. They were there not to encourage Jesus. They were there to critique Jesus. And Luke makes it abundantly clear that the Pharisees are there and the scribes are there. And you know intuitively they're not there to applaud Jesus. They're there to analyze Jesus. And so we are told that a large crowd was there. The very next line, Luke tells us that the power of the Lord rested on him it's the very next line it's an interesting statement please don't misunderstand it it doesn't mean that before Luke chapter 5 the power of the Lord was not resting upon Jesus it doesn't mean that the power of the Lord was here today and gone tomorrow sometimes upon Jesus sometimes not upon Jesus it would come in different different levels uh, upon the holy anointed one it doesn't mean that at all I think what Luke is pointing out is that Jesus possessed all power of the Lord as compared to the Pharisees and the scribes. The Pharisees and the scribes had worldly power, they had worldly influence, but that pales in comparison to the power of the Lord that rested on him. So the power of the Lord rested upon Jesus because Jesus is God in the flesh. The same power it spoke the world into existence, was upon him. The same power that taught the sun how to shine, to rise in the east and set in the west, was upon him. The same power that created the birds of the air, the beast of the field, the fish of the sea, was upon him. The same power that separated the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry land was upon him. The same power that shut up the mouths of the lions for Daniel and raised up the widow's son in Zarephath was upon him. The same power that rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of fiery furnace was upon him. The same power that preserved Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish was upon him. The same power that is testified in the law of Moses in the Old Testament covenant was upon him. Jesus had all power. I want you to know this morning that the same Jesus 
that was in that house in Luke chapter 5 is in this house in 2016. It's the very same Jesus. And this Jesus who's in this house today has all power. He has the power to heal a sin-sick soul. He has the power to mend a wayward mind. He has the power to heal a broken heart. He has the power to restore a broken marriage. He has the power to break every addiction. He has the power to retrieve every lost prodigal. He has the power to open up a door of employment. He has a power to make a way where there's no way. He has the power to give help to the helpless. He has the power to give hope to the hopeless. I want you to know who's here today. It's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He set up shop right here. He has all power in this house. This is what the friends of the paralytic believed. They believed that Jesus had all power. Once again, it's not Luke who tells us the number of the friends. That's Mark. Mark tells us there were four friends who carried their buddy who was paralyzed. And they believed that Jesus had all power. They said to their friend, if we can only get you to Jesus, he can heal you. And so they picked up the mat. I can only visualize that they picked up all four corners of that mat. They hoisted the stretcher upon their shoulders and off they went to look towards that Capernaum home. When they got there, the crowd was so large that they could not get in. I mean, other people had the sick and the blind and the needy. So I do cut the crowd some slack. I mean, it does seem kind of cruel to think that you got a paralyzed guy on a mat and some of his buddies are trying to get through and nobody... Nobody paves the way or opens the door or lets them come through. It's like, no, take your ticket, take your number, get in the back of the line. You can't get through here. And I think that for some of us, we would have looked at our friend and said, you know, we gave it the college try. We did the best we could. Maybe Jesus will come back another day. Maybe he'll visit Capernaum again sometime later. I mean, maybe we'll just catch him at another time. Some of us would have said this, but yet these guys, according to Luke, have a tenacity that's infectious. They would not be denied. They couldn't get through the front door. I'm assuming if the house had a back door, they couldn't get through that either. I'm also assuming that if there are any windows on the side, they could not shoot him through there as well. So they thought to themselves, what are we going to do? So they hoisted the stretcher on their shoulders again. They went to the side of the house, for they knew it was customary for construction in the first century for one-level homes to have a staircase on the side of the house. And then from that vantage point, they could place themselves on the flat rooftop. That's exactly what they did. They uh, lifted him up. They carried him up the stairs and... Then they stood on the flat rooftop, and then they looked at each other and said, who brought the saw? I mean, apparently, they had some tools with them. These were the first Boy Scouts, right? I mean, they're always prepared. It's Mark who says they cut through the roof. Luke says they had to remove tiles. Oh, so which one's right? Both of them. Because they at first had to cut through the thatch, cut through the top layer of the roof. And then once they got through that, then they would have had, a, had to remove the tiles from underneath. So both Mark and Luke are accurate uh, in their description of what's going on. Now keep in mind, we don't know much of anything about this paralyzed guy. 
We don't know anything about his name. We don't know anything about his age. We don't know anything about his family history. We just know that he's on a mat. That's all we know. Luke uses the word that in the Greek is paralyo, which means uh, that uh, we take it that he is paralyzed. It's a word that literally means he has weak knees. Many times someone who had weak knees was uh, in that condition because of some type of trauma that happened to the back of the leg, which uh, rendered the lower extremities um, unable to be used. And maybe that was this man's story. Maybe there was a time when he could run and jump with the best of them. Maybe he was the star player on Palestine's basketball team. Maybe he could run fast, he could jump high, but something happened, an injury. Um, maybe he got mugged, maybe he got robbed, maybe a trauma took place, maybe a, a blow to the back of the legs. Regardless, it left him paralyzed and he could no longer move. Apparently he had some charisma. He does have some friends, at least four of them, that seemed to, seemed to really care about him. They get him to the top of the roof. Somebody brought the saw. They begin to cut through the roof. And they say to him, we're not taking no for an answer. We're going to plop you right in front of the feet of Jesus. When I visualize this story, I always have to smile and laugh. Because what do you think the crowd did when debris from the ceiling started falling to the floor? Every religious crowd I have ever met has ADD. Every religious crowd I've ever met has ADD, attention deficit disorder. If you don't believe me, just one of you get up and go to the bathroom right now. <laughs> it only takes one person to get up and walk out and everybody starts looking, squirrel, squirrel, you know. I mean, that, that's kind of how we listen. I mean, that's just a religious crowd. Can you imagine on this day when the debris from the ceiling started falling at the feet of Jesus. I'm, I'm enamored with the ability of Jesus to verbally hold the attention of a crowd. He was a master at this. So either, um, either he had the ability to hold their attention and they would not look at the material that was falling from the sky, or Jesus just stopped teaching. And maybe Jesus himself looked up. And everybody was watching as that man was being lowered. One side, then another side. Other side, then another side. As he was being placed at the feet of Jesus. I, I really am concerned about the homeowner. I mean, what was he thinking? When he woke up that day, he thought to himself, this is great. Jesus is going to be in my house. There's going to be a lot of people here. They're going to know me. This is going to put me on the map. They're going to know where I live. And then in that moment, as the ceiling is falling, he must think to himself, is this covered by my homeowner's insurance? <laughs> or maybe he started singing that State Farm jingle, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm. And boom, you know, like a genie, uh, the agent shows up, right? I mean, I wonder, what, what was he thinking? What was he doing in that moment? And all of a sudden, the paralyzed man's mat was placed right at the feet of Jesus with the man on it. Everybody's looking at him. He's looking at Jesus. And Luke says that when 
Jesus saw their faith. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. That statement's problematic. Did you hear what Luke writes? He writes that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to him, friend, your sins are forgiven. It's problematic because for years, I've interpreted it this way. That when Jesus saw the faith of the four friends, he then said to the one paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever interpreted it that way. Maybe you have interpreted it that way. And if you do, it is very problematic. You say, but preacher, what's the problem? Here's the problem. Nowhere in the gospel is a borrowed faith ever affirmed. Nowhere in the gospel is borrowed faith ever affirmed. Your sins are not going to be forgiven because of the faith of the person seated to your right or to your left. You're not going to go to heaven because your mom and your dad are devout Christians. You are not going to have an eternity with Jesus because your girlfriend really loves Jesus or your boyfriend is crazy about Christ. You're not going to heaven on the coattails or the faith of somebody else. So if it's accurate that Jesus sees the faith of the four friends and then he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, that is very problematic. Until I realize that when Luke says that Jesus saw their faith, the word there refers not just to the four friends, but to all five. Because it takes a great deal of faith, personal faith, for your sins to be forgiven. And it takes a great deal of faith to plop your buddy at the feet of Jesus. You know what faith is? Faith is believing that Jesus can apply grace to the place of need. That's faith. Faith is believing that Jesus can apply grace to the place of need. This paralytic had enormous faith. That's the only reason of how Jesus can look at him and say, friend, your sins are forgiven. His faith had to be personal. It had to be real. Your faith has to be real. It has to be personal. You cannot borrow the faith of anybody else in this crowd or out of this crowd or those who've gone on before you. You can't borrow anybody else's faith. It's got to be real and it's got to be personal. The faith of the paralytic was personal. The faith of the friends was very obvious because they believed that Jesus had the ability to apply grace to the place of need. So he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, I've already told you the Pharisees and the scribes are there. They begin to listen up and they think to themselves, okay, this guy is a blasphemer. Only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? Does he actually think he's God in the flesh that somehow he has authority to forgive sins? These Pharisees had no idea how accurate their thoughts were because Jesus is God and he does have authority. But they thought this guy puts on his toga just like I do. 
This guy puts on his sandals just like I do. This guy is as much of a guy as I am. Well, Jesus is fully guy, but he's also fully God. They had no idea what they were saying. And Jesus, according to Luke, could read their thoughts. This should cause some of us to say amen and others of us to say oh my. To realize that Jesus accurately knows your thoughts even before they fly across the screen of your mind. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, um, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to tell a, par a paralytic, get up and walk? Which is an easier statement to make? Another way to ask that, which statement requires more visible proof to verify? I mean, you think about it that way and you realize um, anybody can say to you, your sins are forgiven. But where's the evidence in that? Well, the evidence is when you stand before God, right? I mean, when you stand before God... Uh, when you stand at judgment day, when, when you're there uh, before the bema seat of Christ, when you're standing there, I mean, it'll be obvious whether your sins are forgiven or not. And let me tell you, the only way that sins are forgiven is if God in Christ has forgiven you and clothed you with his innocent, holy righteousness. Now, we know that and we have that because the word of God tells us that. But anybody, any Tom, Dick, and Harry could tell you your sins are forgiven. But you don't know. So you stand before the Lord, right? But if any Tom, Dick, or Harry went up to a paralyzed man and said, get up and walk. And if he did, proof's in the pudding, right? I mean, it's obvious, undeniable, visible. But if he looked at a paralyzed man and said, get up and walk. And the man tried and wasn't able to. What would the crowd say? Phony, don't believe him, he's a liar. So Jesus says, which statement's easier to make? But so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Then turning to the paralytic, he said, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And immediately, he sprang to his feet, and he walked out. What does Jesus do in this sacred sentence? What does he do in this miraculous moment? I'll tell you what he does. He puts together his power and his authority. I've already said that Jesus has all power, but he also has all authority. He has power and authority. He has the power to heal and the authority to forgive sins. Who is this Jesus? This Jesus is the one and only who has all power and all authority. Remember, Luke writes this gospel to show Theophilus, I want you to have blessed assurance of the things that you've been taught. You've been taught and told that Jesus is the Son of God, King of Kings. I want to show you that he's Son of God, King of Kings. He has all power and he has all authority he has the power to heal he can do the impossible he has the authority to forgive sins so that you can be declared righteous in the sight of God you know it's one thing for a person to have power but no authority it's another thing for a person to have authority but no power Jesus has both the word power means that he has strength. He has ability. 
In fact, there's nothing that Jesus physically cannot do. It's a picture of, of power, strength. It's like, um, it's like the guy at the weight room who can bench press over 500 pounds. Now I got a newsflash for you. I can't bench press 500 pounds. I know it's a shock, <laughs> but I can't. But I've seen the guy who can do it. I mean, he's got five plates on both sides of the bar. It's looking as if the bar is bending as he's pushing it out, pushing it out. And I don't want to be guilty of staring at the guy, but I'm kind of amazed at this, right? So he gets done and pops off the bench and looks at me, and I'm like, hey, what's up, dude? <laughs> and he takes one look at me and is like, I could break you like a toothpick. Yeah, I know, I know. What's up? That's power, right? I mean, he's pushing it out, power. And then I drop off my children at school, and I see a picture of authority. Because as I'm, as I'm coming out of the school, I see a police officer. He's got his vehicle. He's got his uniform. He's got his badge. And he steps in front of oncoming traffic. And all he has to do is lift up his hand. And he stops a two-ton truck coming in his direction. He stops an 18-wheeler. I mean, all he does is walk in front of the traffic, put his hand up, and that vehicle stops. My friends, that's authority. I mean, if I were to get out of my car, if I were to walk across the street, and if I were to do this, the guy would think I'm just waving at him, right? I mean, I have no authority to do that. But he does. He's got the badge. He's got the vehicle. He's got the uniform. Because he has authority. Who is Jesus? Jesus, this is an inadequate illustration, but, but Jesus is the guy on the bench press and the police officer all put up into one. He has all power and he has all authority. He is, he's no one like him. He has all power. He can do the miraculous in your life. And he can declare you innocent in the very sight of God. He can forgive all of your sins, past, present, and future. He has all power and all authority. What does this story do? This story puts together the power and authority of Jesus. He says, so you'll know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Let me demonstrate my power by saying to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And the man springs to his feet. Luke uses the word immediately. There's no hesitation. There's no doubt. There's no wondering. There's no awkward pause. Immediately, he gets up. And he walks out rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? He's rejoicing not only because he can walk, but also because he can worship God. He's rejoicing not just because he can run, but because he's declared righteous in the sight of God. He's rejoicing, not just because he can skip, but because he's been saved. He rejoices, not just because he can move his legs. He rejoices because he now knows the Messiah on a personal basis. He rejoices because power and authority just showed up in his life. When power and authority show up in your life, you have only one possible explanation and result, and it is unexplainable joy. For you to rejoice when power and authority show up. In fact, this was caught by the crowd. 
they celebrated. They praised God. Why? Because we've seen remarkable things today. Today, they had seen a miracle of God. Today, they had heard the word of God. Today, they had seen the movement of God. Today, they had seen visibly the power and authority of God. Today, they had seen remarkable things. This morning, why did you come to this house? Why did you come to this house? Uh, well, I came to this house because it's Sunday. I came to this house because I always come to church. I came to this house expecting to sing some songs and pray some prayers and hear some preaching and then, then go home. I mean, I, that's, that's what I expected to see today and experience today. No, my friends, you came to this house to see remarkable things because the remarkable one is in this house today. You can see the forgiveness of your sins. Today, you can see a mighty miracle in your life. Today, the cancer can be healed in your body. Today, your marriage can be put back together. Today, you can receive a phone call from your wayward son or daughter. Today, you can hear the good news about the salvation of others. Today, you can hear the very word of God proclaimed. Today, remarkable things can happen. You can come crawling into the, the house today and you will leave rejoicing. You'll be skipping, you'll be running, you'll be jumping. Why? because you've seen remarkable things because the remarkable one was in the house today. Amen. Do not demote Jesus. He's at a place all by himself. He can do all things. Don't doubt him. He can forgive all of your sins. Don't deny it. You just do your best to plop yourself at the feet of Jesus and then let Jesus do his thing. And when he's done, you'll spring to your feet. You'll be transformed. You'll walk out of here and declare that God did the remarkable. Some of you are here today. You need some remarkable things to happen. Jesus is able. Amen. Jesus is able. The Jesus in the house of Luke 5 is the same Jesus in this house of 2016. Jesus is able. So let's plop ourselves at the feet of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Some of us, because of brokenness, we may not willingly physically be able to plop ourselves at the feet of Jesus. So I pray for some friends to surround some buddies. I pray for friends to surround other individuals and physically bring them to the altar of God, that symbol of, uh, of, of your uh, seat, uh, at, at your feet. And, oh, Father, we pray that you will be honored and glorified in these few moments of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.